And our scripture reading comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be dealing with the doctrine of the resurrection this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll read the entire chapter, even though it is a bit lengthy. First Corinthians chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve, and after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do, some of you, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so, <clears throat> even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. 
for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If, in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. For what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but merely grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, 
who gives us the victory through, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This far the reading of God's holy and infallible word. And let us now also read from the Heidelberg Catechism in connection with this passage as we are working through the states of the Mediator, uh, Lord's Day 17, dealing with the resurrection. It's found on page 45 in the back of your Psalter. Page 45 in the back section of your Psalter, Lord's Day 17. And the question asks, what does the resurrection of Christ profit us? And the the answer is, first, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. And secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life. And lastly, The resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Dear congregation, the disciples themselves saw the Lord Jesus Christ, their master, their teacher, their hope, their everything. They saw him die on the cross. They saw him carried to the grave. And what was the only thing that could bring them that joy again? It was the resurrection. Seeing their very Lord and Master raised from the dead and standing in front of them where he could be touched and seen by them. It says, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. In John 20 verse 20. What was the only thing that could give Paul the courage to face all the persecution and suffering that he faced? He said, even if he had to suffer like some of the Christians that were mauled by beasts in Ephesus, what they did in the Roman Colosseums there, what could give him the courage is the hope of the resurrection for Christians. And what does Paul say gives us hope for ourselves and for our loved ones who die or who fall asleep in the Lord, as as Paul puts it. It's the resurrection. It's the fact that God's people will be raised up on that last day with body and soul to meet the Lord and to meet one another again. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the disciples saw and we can know that we have a living Savior. He died on the cross to pay for sin. But when that penalty was paid and done for, He arose from the dead. And with that, He he demonstrated that He defeated death. That all sin had been paid for. That God's justice had been satisfied. And a grave and a death could no longer hold Him who is the victor. And so what we wish to consider today is this doctrine of the resurrection. As we've been working through the catechism, we now come to the exaltation of Christ 
And the resurrection is the first step, the first stage in the exaltation of Christ. If you remember what we've been discussing in these past weeks is the humiliation of Christ, the descent coming down from heaven into this earth in a state of humiliation. That means in a state of condemnation and guilt as he came into this world to bear the sins of his people. He was born into this world. He suffered in this world. He died on the cross. He was buried and he descended into the torments of hell. Those are the, the steps, the five steps going down in his humiliation. Now his resurrection is the first step up in his exaltation. Maybe his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, as we hope to consider this Thursday evening on Ascension Day. We hope many of you are able to make it in Abbotsford. And then his session is sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And then the last step still needs to happen is his return in the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead when he will bring his kingdom to completion. So today we wish to consider the resurrection, and our theme is faith in Christ's resurrection. All of these, of course, are going through the Apostles' Creed, what we confess to believe as Christians, and here it is faith in Christ's resurrections. So the disciples did not immediately believe the reports from the women and others that Christ had rose, that he had rose from the dead. They did not believe it until they saw it themselves. They saw him themselves. And then they could say, the Lord is risen indeed. It is certain. We saw him. Now we will not see the resurrected Christ until he returns in the cloud of heaven. Then we'll see the glorified Christ. Or unless we fall asleep first in Christ or die first, we will meet him in eternity. But the faith, our faith in Christ's resurrection is essential to our faith and also to our comfort. Peter said, He has begotten us to a living hope, to a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what gives Christians hope and comfort in this life. And in this chapter that we read, Paul gives a lengthy description and argument for the, the resurrection of the dead, the reality of the resurrection. And he began in verse 3, stating the authority of Scripture. We're providing the evidence that Scripture itself gave, because all through the Old Testament, this also was prophesied that Christ would arise. And so he says in verse 3, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which you also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So He leans on Scripture first of all. And that's also where we must always begin in this world. In a world where everything is so focused on science and our own reasoning, we need to see all things through the lens and through the interpretation of God's holy, and infallible word. But then Paul moves, secondly, to the evidence of the many witnesses that saw the Lord Jesus Christ risen. The Bible, of course, says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, anything can be established. And here, there's not only two or three witnesses, but many. In verse 5, he was seen by Peter. And in verse 6, he was seen by, or then by the twelve Apostles, and then he was seen by over 500 brethren of one, at once. 
many of who were still alive at the time that Peter was writing, or sorry, Paul was writing. And then he says, James saw him, who would be the half-brother of Jesus. And then Paul himself speaks of his own testimony of seeing the Lord Jesus when he met him on the road to Damascus. And when we read the Lord's Day 17 here, it did not mention anything about the details surrounding the resurrection, but it focused on one main point. And that point was, what does this resurrection profit us? What does it benefit us? There's, there's no discussion about the fact of the resurrection. That is established. It, it must be established. And that's what Paul establishes here in this chapter. But what does it benefit us? We must believe in the resurrection. But also here in the church of Corinth, there were people who doubted the resurrection or parts of it. They had a misunderstanding of it. And in verse 12, Paul says, If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, there were various views. In the times of the Lord Jesus, there were the Sadducees who themselves did not believe in the resurrection, nor in angels or spirits. But after the Lord Jesus arose, the Pharisees, they did believe in the resurrection. They believed in the resurrection so much that they hired Roman guards to guard the tomb to make sure that that he would not rise, and that when the soldiers came and told that the, the Lord Jesus was gone, they paid him to tell them a lie that the disciples had stolen them, to stolen the Lord. But when, Peter, sorry, when Paul is writing this to the Corinthians, he's really speaking against a, the view of the Greek philosophers who believed that the body was merely a cage or a prison of the soul. And that once you die, your soul is freed to be free in eternity forever. And the Corinthian believers were influenced by this Greek view. And they could not see the benefit of a bodily resurrection. Why would you want a body again if you view your body as a prison? And so Paul is confronting this view that only the soul lives on and not the body. But further on in history, we also see errors and doubts about the resurrection especially in the 18th century, which is called the Age of Reason or the Enlightenment era. Many people started to question and to doubt the miracles, including the resurrection. They could only believe what they could understand or with their minds or what they could reason. And the resurrection is not something we can really wrap our minds around. We cannot reason it out in our own minds. And so they placed their own fallen reasoning, their own fallen understanding above God and His Word. And so they deny the exact things that Christians confess as essential to our faith. That is that Christ is both God and man, that He came into this world born of a Virgin Mary, and that He suffered and that He died as a substitute to atone for the sins of His people, and that we are born in God's image and that we've fallen in sin and need a Savior to deliver us from our sin. And so they deny Christ's vicarious death, and they deny His victorious resurrection. And so in this world where there is so much focus on science and reason, as I mentioned, we have to be careful not to be pulled along in these directions. We cannot see any further than death. Our, our eyesight is limited. But where sight ends, faith continues. 
even though we cannot fully understand these things. But today, the people tend to interpret death as merely the res- not as a result of sin, but merely a natural biological process, like a plant that grows up and it dies away. But death is the wages of sin, God says. He said in Genesis 2, 17, that the day you eat of the forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. But here in verses 3 and 4, Paul expresses the certainty of the fact that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. And because Christ has taken away our sin, both our body and soul can be raised again to be with God forever. Just like Adam and Eve were able to live in God's presence with body and soul, so believers also will live body and soul in the presence of God. And so from verse 13 on, Paul gives a defense of the bodily resurrection by listing seven points of reason, of points of logic. And he uses contrast and negative view. In verse 13 he says, if there's no bodily resurrection, well then Christ's body is not risen. And then we might as well stop right here and go home and close the church doors. Because then he says that our preaching is not only empty and useless, but then it's also a lie. Then we would also be false witnesses of God. And in verse 14 he says that would mean that your faith is empty and means nothing. And then in verse 17 he says it would be futile and worthless. And if that's the case, that would mean that we are still in our sins. That would mean that there's no forgiveness, that there's no gospel, that there's no salvation, and that there would be no deliverance from death. And that would mean that the punishment of death would still be in effect. And that would mean that everyone who is still, that everyone is still condemned by God. And everyone is condemned to eternal punishment. Verse 18, then he says, And all those who die believing in Christ have perished without hope. Because if the body is not raised, then it can also not be a spiritual life. We cannot have one without the other. Because death is the curse of sin. And if that's not removed, then there's also no spiritual life. Verse 19, he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, most pitiable. And everyone who dies believing in the Lord Jesus died in a false hope. That means every Christian would have given up all the pleasures of this world for nothing. That means every Christian throughout history would have suffered for nothing and be reproached by the world for nothing. We would be tempted and have to fight against sin for nothing. We'd have to deny the pleasures of sin and the pleasures of this world for no reason. Then we lose everything in this world, and then we have nothing to gain after this world. And so in verse 32, Paul says, And what is the purpose then of having to fight with the beast at Ephesus? And in some way he's alluding to uh, most likely when the Christians were put into the ring and had to fight wild animals. What is then the purpose if we would not, not be raised from the dead? What is the purpose of enduring persecution if there is no hope of eternal life with God? What is the purpose of standing for any truth if it really means nothing? So verse 32, he says, If the dead do not rise, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's nothing after death, then the only enjoyment we can get is what this world has to offer here and now. 
And so he gives those points of logic, but then in verse 20, he, he suddenly changes again to the positive. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. This is undeniable. Christ has conquered the last enemy of death. He has paid that penalty of sin in full, that eternal punishment of death of body and soul. And Christ was raised with body and soul. In Psalm 110, it said already, all enemies would be put under his feet. That means all his enemies would be destroyed. And here in verse 26, Paul says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death is and remains our last enemy. Death is not natural, but it's the the result of our sin, the curse of God on our disobedience. It's a separation from God and from one another. And this death that we've fallen into is both temporal, separating our body and our soul. It is spiritual, separating us from God. And it is eternal, separating us body and soul from God eternally if we are not restored to Him. But because Christ rose from the dead, we can say with Paul in verse 55, O death, where is your sting? And grave, where is your victory? Christ arose as the head of His church. And because Christ arose as the head, His body, the church, all the believers will also be raised with Him at that last day when He returns. And so you can see the importance of the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Christ. And that is what Paul is laying out for us in this chapter, but also what the Catechism points out here, there are three main benefits that we need to understand with the resurrection. The early Christians, when they died, they often had, if they had a shrine or a a, a stone on top of their grave, it would have a cross on it and would also have a laurel crown. A laurel crown of leaves was often worn for people who, who won, who had, who had the victory in, in some event. But here it represents the victory over death that Christ has accomplished. Christ who suffered and died on the cross so that His people can receive victory over death. And so the first benefit that our, the Catechism points out and summarizes here It says, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he purchased for us by his death. And so Christ arose because he had fully accomplished that work of salvation that God the Father had sent him to do. He conquered death because he took away the cause of death. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered up because of our offenses and he raised up for our justification. And now Paul can say the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And when a sinner is saved, they are justified. That means delivered from the penalty of death because Christ has paid that debt. He removes that from you, and He gives you His righteousness, makes you partakers of His righteousness. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved 
and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here God makes a dead sinner spiritually alive. He raises you up. And that means literally to resurrect you to spiritual life from spiritual death. And we do not have that power to do this ourselves. A spiritually dead person cannot take this life themselves. They cannot make themselves righteous before God. And if Christ was still in the grave, then no one could be made righteous. But Christ arose victorious, and now he lives to cover the sins of his people with his righteousness. And because he rose from the dead, later on he would also pour out his Holy Spirit. And it's, it's his Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sin and of our need of a Savior. It convicts us of our misery and of our separation from God. We're, felt, we're made to feel the curse of the law. We're made to feel the sting of death. And we learned to dread the thought of having to meet God unprepared and without forgiveness. Because that would be an eternal separation from God. But Christ is risen, and He makes sinners partakers of His righteousness by grace through faith. And He gives even His Spirit to give that faith to embrace Christ as your only righteousness in the sight of a holy God. The justification of a sinner is the first benefit given. But the second one that the Catechism says there is we are by His power raised up to a new life. Paul says in verse 17, if Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. That means there's no deliverance from it, there's no forgiveness for it. But in Romans 6, he can say that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That means there's a, a new life given to His people. Justification sets you free from the penalty of sin. Sanctification sets you free from the power of sin to live a new life. Through the resurrection power of, of Christ, you are raised to live a new life to serve God. Raised from the grave, you could say, from the bondage of sin. Raised from the power of sin. And through the power of the risen Christ, your sins are or your sins can be destroyed. He can set you free. And He raises you to a new and holy life in His sight. And so how do we know if we are a partaker of the resurrection and that new life? Well, that new life will be seen in the direction that you walk and live in this world. There will be new choices. Freedom from the bondage of sin. There will be an increasing love for God and an increasing hatred for sin. There's a continual turning to Him. Maybe learning to follow God instead of following this world. You'll grow in holiness, living out the life that Christ has worked in you. As Paul says, for me to live is Christ. And the end goal of the resurrection is to be raised with Christ eternally in body and soul. And the sanctification is the beginning of that process here on earth to produce that conforming to the image of Christ already here on this earth in a small way. But that leads us then to the last and third benefit of 
the resurrection of that is the glorification. The glorification. In verse 20, Paul says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first fruit, he is the head of the church, and he is risen up, and so also his church will follow him into glory one day. Because the head can never be separated from the body. And Paul says, Now believers are laid into the grave with corruptible bodies, perishable bodies. But when that trumpet will sound on that last day and Christ returns, they shall be raised with an incorruptible body in glory. And he shows that comparison in verse 42. So is the resurrection of the dead. Body is sown in, in, so body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. He's comparing the, the question of what will the body be like in, in glory. But he says it will be a spiritual body, one that is fit to dwell in the presence of God, in the holiness of God. And now we are dying. Now we are corrupting. Now we are deteriorating. We can notice in every, every area of our body in every area of her life. But that new body will be raised to live forever. And in this world that's so obsessed with trying to stop the aging process, but in glory in heaven there is no aging process. This world tries to preserve life because it knows we are dying. But Christians have the hope of an undying, resurrected body in glory with the Lord forever. Our natural body is born under the curse of sin, groaning every day under the weight of death, waiting to be delivered from it. And believers will be raised with a new spiritual body, specially prepared to dwell in God's presence forever, to be able to stand in the radiant glory of God and not be consumed, and to be able to live in perfect obedience to His moral holiness, and the Heidelberg Catechism says then Christ's resurrection is the sure pledge of our resurrection. Now, a pledge is, is a guarantee. And years ago, if people wanted to go to the bank to borrow money, they'd have to leave a pledge. They'd have to leave a guarantee that they would come back and pay it. So usually they'd leave something valuable to them, like say a watch, which was hard to come by then. They would leave it at the bank to show that they would come back to pay off the loan. But Christ's resurrection is that pledge, it is that guarantee that God's children will certainly, without a doubt, be raised from the dead, both body and soul. And so the disciples could say, He is risen indeed. And that's our hope as well. That's the hope of every Christian. It doesn't matter where our bodies will end up in this world, whether at the bottom of the sea, like those who have sunk in ships, whether those who are eaten by animals, those who are in the grave, those who burn on the stake, they will be raised with Christ on that last day in an incorruptible body, a spiritual body, a glorified body. But Paul, he also addressed the concern of those who will be here when, when Christ comes who will not die. He says, not everyone will die in verse 51. There will still be people on earth 
when Christ will return in the clouds of heaven. And he says they will be changed. Their natural body will turn into a spiritual body as the Lord receives them. But we, will, we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. The glorious hope of every believer. But there is also the resurrection of the wicked to judgment. It's not only the believers that will be resurrected. They will be resurrected to glory. But the wicked will also be resurrected to judgment and eternal destruction. Because John 5 verse 28 says, The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Revelation 20, verse 12 also says, The dead were judged according to their works. By the things which were written in the books, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. The death and Hades, or hell or the grave, were cast into the lake of fire, This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we need to ask ourselves today, how will you be raised up on the last day? He says here, according to our works, we will be judged according as we live. And so the question is, how do we live? Do we live in the hope of the resurrection of Christ? Is our life being conformed in that sanctification? Do we know of the forgiveness of sins being justified by the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we know of the life of sanctification, our life being changed according to the Word of God to follow Him, to live for Him, to be changed by Him? Do we know of that desire to be with Him? Or not? Because if our life is still living for our own account, following the ways of the world, and oh, even if we go to church, but it's only a mere formality, and it's not a matter of the heart, then we'll be raised to judgment according to our work. Revelation 6 says, Unbelievers will cry out to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Because hell is a place of always dying, but never being gone. Always wishing for death, but never being able to die. An eternal death of both body and soul under the wrath of God and separated from the favor and presence of God a place where the conscience will never stop accusing us of what we have done and what we should have done. Today is the day that the Lord calls you to turn to Him, if that is you. Today Christ is risen to save sinners, 
and to deliver them from the bondage of sin and of death. But believers will be raised with a glorified body, made like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this life, we know there's only but a small change in even the most holy of believers, in being conformed to the image of Christ. But the resurrection will make us like Christ, to become like Christ. Philippians 3 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed into His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. He can transform us to become like Him. And that's why Paul says in verse 54, O death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, or O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If this is your hope, then what a blessed hope it is. And what reason there is to, to shout out, the Lord is risen indeed, because then you also will be risen with Christ in that last day, glorified with Him. And that's why Paul can also give us this encouragement in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Whatever you face in this world, it is not in vain. Your faith is not in vain. Your hope is not in vain. Your work is not in vain because you are working towards this resurrection that God will raise you up for His sake. And so the hope of a bodily resurrection also leads to an active Christian life in the service and the fear of God. And the evidence of our hope of the resurrection, of being in Christ, is that we're looking forward to that time when we can be with Christ and made like Christ, when we be raised with Christ, working out that salvation that God has worked in us. Calvin says this, If heaven is our homeland, what else is the earth but our place of exile? No one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. Christian life can be difficult, it can be perplexing, especially at the times when we see the wicked prosper and the godly suffer. But there is such a liberty and such a hope that nothing in this world can ever provide. And one day all this will be past. And those of you who fall asleep in the Lord will be raised to eternal life with body and soul to be with Christ forever. And there you will receive every blessing without end. And so whatever our life holds on this earth, whatever we are to face as Christians in this life, we need this faith in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's through Him alone that we are saved, raised to spiritual life, raised to a new life to live for Him here, and we'll be raised with Him to eternal life. So we can say he is risen indeed. Let this be your hope in this coming week, your hope and your comfort. Amen. Let us pray.